Hi everyone, this is Wes, and you're listening to an episode of Subtext about the film Joker. This is a discussion that I had at the Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis on November 22nd, 2019, with Dr. William Sharp, a psychoanalyst and faculty at Northeastern, and with an audience of about 40. We explore the psychology of the effect of this film on the audience, including what it is that explains why a movie like this would be so popular, despite the bleakness of its subject matter and the lack of elements typical of a comic book movie. You'll find video for this discussion on PEL's YouTube channel. I hope you enjoy. Why don't you start? Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm seeing everybody here. It's always fun. This is an interesting film to me because my biggest question that I left with is, uh, it's a disturbing movie, but I didn't quite know why it was disturbing. I didn't know whether I wanted to recommend it to people or not recommend people see it. I kind of felt like I would tell people I saw it and that they should decide for themselves if they should have seen it. I don't exactly know why. I'm not sure what it was in the movie that is so disturbing. So I'd love to kind of really get into that. And yeah, since I don't have much of a voice today, I'm really hoping that people are interested in doing most of the work uh, in, in helping me understand what's so disturbing about this. I will start with, I found one quote, I was trying to figure out where to go even in psychoanalysis and Freud with this, but I found one in jokes in relation to the unconscious. And then I thought to myself, he's a joker without a lot of jokes. It's really not humorous in a lot of ways. But I found one thing where Freud talks a little bit about two different kinds of jokes. So I thought I would just start with that and see where people wanted to go and see what you wanted to, to comment on it. But So here's what Freud has to say. Jokes are either hostile, serving the purpose of aggressiveness, satire, or defense, or obscene, serving the purpose of exposure. It must be repeated in advance of the technical species of the joke whether it is a verbal or conceptual joke, there's no relation to these two purposes, which I thought was just as confusing as the movie. So. <laughs> I was also hoping the audience would do most of the work, but uh, I told people there wasn't really a talk tonight. It was just a conversation. So I had similar concerns as you, but they were more about why this film would get such a large audience. So it got an eight-minute standing ovation at Cannes, it's the highest, already the highest grossing art film in film history. Originally, I wasn't going to go see it because I don't really I go to see superhero films anymore. There's just so many of them now, and um, I just I thought I should boycott them and only go see other types of films or see rare these days. But I, the thing that actually convinced me to go see the film was the preview of The Joker Dancing Downstairs in Queens and just the fact that it was going to be... There was talk of it being about someone who was severely mentally ill, and I thought that was interesting, and talk of it being dark. So I did not go to the film with high expectations, but I was very impressed by what the director, Todd Phillips, did with it. And the other thing, recently I saw that that scene where he's dancing down the steps in his very, very triumphant way in full costume after having just... Uh, I forget who he has killed at this point, but... It's something that people are, tourists are now going to the, the, those steps in Queens. And in, in, in the movie, of course, it's Gotham, it's not Queens, but they're real steps that exist in Queens, and tourists are 
pissing off people who live in the neighborhood because they are doing the Joker dance, and some of them falling down trying to do it because you know, there's lots of kicks, but doing, doing the Joker dance down those steps, sometimes dressed up in, uh, in clown makeup. So I thought that was really interesting because even though it's such a dark film, it really seems to have captured people's imaginations. And it's not just that they go, oh, this is a great film, you know, despite the fact that it has dark subject matter. There's an element of joy, I think, in people's responses to the film. And that's because I think that there's an element that it gives us a kind of pleasure that is actually rare in movies these days. And that is um, some of the pleasures of that we normally see in dramatic tragedy. It's not really, the film is not technically a, a complete tragedy, you know, so in a, in a play like Hamlet or something like that, the tragic hero starts out as a great person in a sense and then loses everything and often dies by the end of it. And in The Joker, it's a little bit more complicated because we will see him fall apart mentally, but there's a counter arc in which he will be triumphant. He will become this uh, supervillain. I think that's actually a kind of, despite the fact that he's a villain, a kind of triumph that the audience can identify with. So you get a very interesting kind of tragic comedy, and I think there are comic elements as well. So the, some of it really is funny, although the funniness is just in his goofy dance, for instance, down those steps, or in the goofy chase scene, which is really... So the chase scene at the very end of the movie where he's just killed... It's implied that he's killed a hospital social worker because he's leaving bloody steps behind. But it's a slapstick chase scene in which he runs from uh, running away from orderlies. So we see him disappear down one side of the hallway, and then we see it with the orderlies in chase, and then we see him run back down the hallway again with the orderlies in chase. That's sort of a film trope, like an old Hollywood, you know, Chaplin-esque type of comedy scene. And there are elements, there are hints that Todd Phillips is consciously doing this throughout the film. So so that tragic comedy element, the filmmakers would make, I think, very clever use of the concept of the Joker villain, which is this whole idea of being someone who is supposed to be a comedian in some sense, but who becomes a murderer. And some of what that exploits is the, there is an inherent, you know, as that Freud quote points out, there's an inherent aggression in humor but it's aggression in sublimated form. And using it requires a certain amount of social skill and connection to people, and it's the kind that the character simply doesn't have. So he's not going to be able to, as we see in the film, successfully be a stand-up comedian because he, uh, he has too much trouble getting into the heads of an audience in order to successfully use humor. So the way he overcomes that, the way he sort of triumphs over that, is to turn humor into into a like a practical joke gone too far. So in that case you are no you no longer have to cater to the pleasure or the desires of an audience, the need to win their approval, the same sort of thing that we have to do in social relations. You can just sort of force something out of people by making them fear you. And then the joke is no longer something for the audience to laugh at, it's for him to laugh at. So he laughs at your he turns it around and then he laughs at your fear. Um, and that's his interesting solution to his particular problem, which I haven't mentioned yet. That I think that's his problem. But it, it, you know, I think the other clever thing about the film is just the its portrayal of mental illness is very realistic in certain ways. 
And the betrayal of someone who's socially isolated like that and who can't make human connection is very realistic and dark. And that's one of the things which I think is surprising that people would want to sit through all of that. And again, I think there are various reasons that they want to do that. One of the other ways in which I think the film accomplishes its goal of getting you to suffer through all of this and yet get pleasure out of it is through its use of dance. So I mentioned the, the staircase scene in Queens, but that's one of many dance scenes that really defines an arc through the whole movie. So there's an early dance scene in which he's, he's doing it very awkwardly in his living room and he's very aroused by a sense of power that he's gotten because he's been given a gun. Then, and the gun goes off accidentally, sort of highlighting his, his ineptitude. But then after he uses that gun to kill people, the Wall Street bros who have harassed him on the subway, he does really what I think is an incredible dancing, what I thought was really the, the best part of the movie in a dirty public bathroom, public restroom. And the scoring, I forget, it's uh, the score of the film is done by a Norwegian, I think, young composer who's a cellist. And so the score to that scene, it's full of both these tragic minor chord undernotes, but also little sort of angelic voices which speak to the possibility of his transcendence of a situation through violence, some martial overtones with drum beats and stuff like that. It's an incredible way to capture that, at the same time, his empowerment and also the tragedy that he is going this route, violent route, he's going to lose everything he wants, which is social connection, even if he gains this supervillain status. The kind of dancing he does is very ballet-like, so you see him, in a way, it's his first moment of competence in the film, it's the first moment where you see him because he seems to have complete control over his limbs. He's not just doing something goofy, although it is strange the way he dances. And then, like I said, there's the triumphant clown dance down the stairway after he sort of really started to fully begin, begin to inhabit the Joker, the Joker character. So that's one of the things that I found to be really fascinating about the film. But I look forward to hearing what everyone else thinks what what it was you guys because it sounds like a lot of people had the, had a similar reaction more and were really pleasantly surprised let's say by the by the film so what did you think <laughs> i think for me it was very disturbing um i didn't laugh once in the film and i remember being in the audience watching it and i only saw it a couple weeks ago so it wasn't a packed and i remember there was one scene i can't think of it off the top of my head but that one person laughed and i remember being kind of shocked by it because I've heard gasps in the film, but then someone laughed, and I thought, I was disturbed by the laugh, too. I was just like, what? Um, but I remember um, actually feeling, you, I felt for him. I think there was many moments where I felt he's been so let down in so many ways. And, and I guess almost feeling a little guilty about how <laughs> bad I felt for him, because he... Killed lots of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how empowered he made other people feel because of the, the, the violence he committed. Although the first act of violence he committed where everyone felt empowered by it, I, I was like, well, that was self-defense, right? I mean, he was going to get beat to a pulp. Like, the part where someone laughed, someone in a character in the film laughed. You're saying or someone no, in the audience someone laughed? No, it's someone in the audience, in the theater, yeah. You don't remember the scene? That I don't remember yeah. now, but I just remember being kind of 
I was disturbed by the laughter. I, I think I remember, wasn't that when the, the midget guy couldn't reach the lock yes. on the door? Yes. And oh, yeah. he, so did someone, people laughed when they watched him? That yeah, scene. so he, that was a, a violent scene where yeah. he went off against his old co-workers, but he spared the the short man, and, and they were laughing because he couldn't reach, he, the um, Joker had put yeah. the mm-hmm. chain up on the thing and he couldn't reach it. Yeah. So they left, but he ended up sparing him. Yeah. He had a fine. Right, right, right. But that's what I remember when people laughed. I do think that was probably like, I mean, it sounds bad, but that was like a really pleasurable scene for me for whatever reason. Like it was like, I mean, it was like difficult to watch, but it just was, you know, I feel like I felt his apathy or whatever, because it just, it looked like it felt so good to do that. I don't know. So like when I left the movie, I felt like high, like it was like, like I had a really positive reaction which it felt so good to do which part like when he's like beating the guy against the wall like before the midget scene like it's just like like i had to turn my head away but like after i felt like i don't know like a rush kind of from it i feel like like i felt probably not what i'm supposed to feel but well i don't know if you are not supposed to feel it but i think part of the pleasure of this movie is that we get some sort of social justice in into those aggressiveness, like the violence of it is the result of so much injustice, so yeah. much denigration. And I, I feel that it's disturbing because it's hard to see that we all do have our part in a lot of the mental illness of others. And then we have all these people and then we condemn them to jail after having suffered all this much. And when you see in the screen that little moment where at least they can go out and then be this violent, it's a bit of a even that when the talk show host, when he called him on it, like you, the reason you invited him here is just to make fun of me. Like just that, when he said that and how he summed up the movie, I forget the, now because it's been a few weeks since I've seen it, but there was a line he said where I was like, I mean, he hit the He's such a villain, right? Yeah, it's just like, this is the result of society failing people like me. Like I forget exactly what he said. I don't know if you all remember. Anyway. I think you're thinking of a knock-knock joke. Which is the way he leads into the killing. He says, what do you get if you combine a, yes, a misfit yes. loner with a society that's forgotten about him? Yeah. Like, this is what you get. You know, yeah, that's like yeah. kind of like the whole theme. Like just that. I mean. Aside from the implied murder of the orderly, which might reflect the transformation at the end, all of the victims to kind of paraphrase a phrase from the musical Chicago, they all had a come, And it created, I think, a lot of identification. It, it created a lot of identification with them, which is part of maybe why you have people dancing on the stairs in Queens and so forth. And also a lot of catharsis against injustice and so forth. When you think about who the victims were, it kind of set up identification with him too. And it was almost like you wouldn't mind if you found those kids who beat him up and even... And he took care of them too, you know. Mm-hmm. Like that would have been okay. <laughs> you know, that's how it felt. I think a lot of the, re- the reason why movies even exist is so that we can enjoy go and enjoy violence. It's you know, going to movies just to enjoy seeing people killed is, is a big thing. Um, and usually, there's a very typical pattern by which that's all moralized, right? You get good guys and you get bad guys, and even a typical superhero movie. You know, you know who the good guys are and the bad guys are, and the violence is never out of proportion 
to the injury, and often it's a last resort because if it goes too far, if it becomes too sadistic, if it becomes too gratuitous, we will lose the ability to identify with the protagonist who's making use of that violence. This film has to walk a very fine line because it has to do two things at once. It has to keep us identified with the protagonist, but it also has to illustrate that he's a villain. And so his violence can't be so disproportionate that we completely lose connection to him. And so it has to be moralized. You know, you get the Wall Street bros who seemed like they had it coming, but also he hunts down the last one at the end, the guy who's wounded and trying, pathetically trying to crawl away and pleading, pleading in a way and kills him. And that's something that usually would be a deal breaker as far as the audience's connection to a typical protagonist of the movie. The protagonist would just become straightforwardly a bad guy. What we know is that, okay, this is the, he's becoming a supervillain, so we're willing to tolerate a certain amount of that. We, we understand his role in that universe. And that it's only at the very end that we get a killing that is arguably just against someone who's, who's obviously innocent. And that is left off screen. So you just get to see, you get the hint that he's killed this hospital worker and you see the bloody footsteps. But I think that's the right move because I think if, if the film completely shies away from the idea of this full villainy, it hasn't, it hasn't succeeded. So in this movie, it's, it's like a complicated use of violence, I think. And there are lots of movies, of course, in which we see bad guys killing killing lots of people, and we identify with horrible, horrible, horrible people, but they're usually killing worse guys, right? So if it's a mob movie, the mob character we're identifying with is killing worse mob characters and things like that. But, um, He's also killing his mother and a father substitute. So that's also particularly interesting in the... She had a company. You know, that talk about the fantasy. You know, yeah. I mean, that's really pretty amazing to see in a movie. Yeah. And, Sorry. Yeah. I just wanted to say that the, the last killing that you're referring to, to me, is like the top of that social pressure where it turns around against us and then kills the social worker, which is trying to help all these people like him. And that's like where... The circle of violence ends in repeating itself. So to me, it, it just makes sense that it would be that first like symbol. But that, there was something about the social worker that you know she actually didn't see him like all the others didn't see him. And I think he tried to communicate to her that there was something about not being seen, not being acknowledged that he exists that fuels his the violence inside and kind of puts him into bits and pieces, which I kind of think at the end of the movie, all these people that got that he got surrounded by are these bits and pieces. And I think that, you know, the cycle got, it didn't get interrupted with the social worker because no, of course not. she failed to see him as well. Well, there's two, there's two social workers, right? So one in the middle, oh, the, the one in the middle, early part of the film, and then one later. But they, for him, they might as well be the same. Yeah. So that's uh, right, which has something to do with like with the core of it, like existing in someone's mind in the first place. I think she does name it. You know, she does say, and he says, "How am I supposed to get my medication? And who am I supposed to check in with?" And she, she does say. They don't care about people like they us. They don't care about people like us. Yeah. She goes with them in a way, but I think she misses what he's saying, and it, it doesn't... He can't see her she, yeah. anymore. Like, he's the, the one that becomes blind now to the other. Well, no one sees anyone until the very end of the film when he leaves basically an entire riot in the city. Well, that's actually what was kind of most interesting. 
thing to me is like this end of Hyatt scene and this idea of being, being seen. Because the role that the face painter, this mask, is playing in the film is very significant. And then when Mr. Owen mentioned that people in Queens are dancing down the stairs, then I was like, okay, so part of the end of the film, when everyone's in this clown mask, everyone is the Joker. Then, you know, this is also actually happening as a real response to the film. People are dancing down the stairs, getting in costume. And I'm sure it was one of the most popular Halloween costumes of the year. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, to the degree of identification, like, really playing the role, I mean, it's, it's definitely resonated on a really real level. Well, isn't it a triumph to be able to enjoy the falling? <laughs> like, he's literally going deeper and deeper into his fall down the stairs. And that's where he gets the glory as the deeper he goes. And the more precarious it gets, yeah. But it's like people identifying with him or identifying with his mask. Like with something empty, there's nothing. Like, mm-hmm. like what are they identifying with? Right. The mask. But he even put the mask on to hide. He had his makeup on, but then he had to put the mask on so he could hide from the cops, too. So he didn't want to be seen for who he really was at that point in the movie. <laughs> I feel like if I was going to dress up as the Joker because of this movie, it wouldn't be to like because I identified, but rather because I'm like, or maybe because I identified, I'm trying to like push it away from myself and kind of make it funny and make it not as serious. Because I remember like when I saw this movie with my roommates and like walked out of the AMC and at like 1 a.m. or something and then like walked through Boston, it was very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> And like trying to get those ideas out of my head, and I ended up having this like long conversation with my roommates about like what like violence and like when violence is okay and like if violence is okay and like oh what would you do if like someone like did this to your girlfriend and, like because when you identify with the Joker, it's like oh well he does this and like sometimes when he does that stuff, it feels like a normal thing. But I think the people dancing down the stairs maybe an uncomfortable identification with the protagonist is really what's going on. I think that's the significance of the film, highlighting... I remember even when I, before I saw the film, I saw the trailer, and I labeled it, and I said, this is the making of a psychopath. I have to go see it. And now the whole world sees how the system fails somebody who can control his paranoia, tied to medication. Had he not, he becomes a criminal psychopath when pushed to that level, unmedicated, where the paranoia and the illusionary world, and it's done in such an artistic way, when it pretty much guides him through life and it opens this person who goes on a vengeance. He loses self. There's no more reality. By the end of it, we see Joker that we've seen in those villain films, but it's really the all this whole path of not being able to control his you know hallucinations learning about violence and trauma which is usually statistically right it's there's a high childhood abuse when you're leading to a path into like a criminal psychopathic life there's that there's so many things that add to it and then you're off your meds you lose your head and we see him losing his head and i remember this is probably the most important film I have no doubt, I hope it will get an Oscar, for not just for the role, Joaquin Phoenix did an incredible job, for the directorship, for writing the music, the combination of it, I could relate, because when I left the theater, I got in my car, and my partner laughed like the Joker, he did this, and I turned around, did you just do that? Because I felt like I was in this 
film where the shade of a tree didn't look the same. I felt disturbed. That whole translated to me, and it was really scary. The world seemed like a scary place. Please tell me you just did this, that I didn't just imagine that you would laugh. And that laughter shook me. I would agree that, like, yeah, society definitely failed him. But I'd also say that, like, he's intensely happier when he's off his meds and going crazy and killing people. So, like, what really was his quality of life when he was on his meds and not hurting anyone? He was kind of, like, it's like pushing in and pushing in and pushing in. And then he was off his meds, and he's probably a more self-fulfilled person killing everyone. I mean, the only pleasure he can get is, like, beyond what it is like. You know, if he lives a life that's totally desolate and, like, sorrowful, or he, like, goes beyond... The only pleasure he gets is transgressive, so it's, like, the just songs. It's, like, beyond the thing. And I think that's, again, why people are dancing down the stairs. They're filled with that <laughs> sense of, like, this guy did it, whether someone had a coming to him or whatever, he, like, he went beyond what's permissible, and that in itself, that freedom. This is a way that he can connect to people. So if someone really is, if they really have lost all connection to humanity, then unfortunately violence by, you know, violence does make sense. You know, I think we tend to think, well, yeah, that we can help them, and so it doesn't, and of course we have to stop them anyway, because we, we care about the well-being of our, ourselves and society, and but from the standpoint of someone who really has lost all connection, if violence is the is the only means, and it makes sense to it makes sense internally to pursue it, the movie needs that. Like the protagonist, if he's not to become dramatically inert, has to be doing the best that he can under the given circumstances. So it's important that we don't just see him as a victim of society, because then he's without agency, and that becomes uninteresting. He has to be more than a function of social circumstances, and yet there are real boundary circumstances under which which curtail his options, the options for his agency. But I think we, as perverse as it as it might be, we can identify with his social alienation or the, the fear of that type of social disconnection, that ostracism, we can all at a deep level identify with that. And so we can identify with the vindication, the violent vindication that would restore us. What I want to talk uh, more about, because you, you just brought up the word uh, alienation. Uh, well, this is, a, in the first place, is a Hegel's term, and the next, it was like uh, used by um, Karl Marx. Uh, uh, well, Marx's way in, uh, to, to use this word alienation is that he first said that the workers are alienized, that their, their labors, their works are alienized because uh, the works no longer uh, no longer uh, serve for themselves. They serve for the capitalist. And the more they work, the capitalist becomes uh, stronger. The bosses, the the rich, become stronger. And in contrast, they become like weaker. They, uh, the more they work, the weaker they become. And in in this case, uh, the laughter. Well, uh, there is one uh, criticism in like Zhejiak uh, uh, or something like that is like uh, we need some kind of like a surplus enjoyment to maintain this whole society structure. But the Joker is not, is not the case because uh, Joker he alienizes not only his work but all, but also his enjoyment and his uh, his laughing. His he provides other selves with laughter with joy. With enjoyment, but at the same time as an alienation, he lost it for himself. 
there was an alienation of his laughter. He have to like provide a laughter for <coughs> other people in order to earn money or something like that. But at the same time, because it's an alienation, he provides the or the jokes or something to other people. At the same time, he lost it for himself. He no longer feels enjoyment in in it. So enjoyment in in, in himself. I mean. Telling jokes or in jokes in any anything that the, so, the society provides to maintain the status quo. Well, the society like the uh, like cultural capitalists or something like that. The cultural scene, like the movie, something like that. For example, in our society, our like movies, superhero movies, uh, maintains uh, some kind of like a hallucination or f- fantasies for ourselves. It is a product for ourselves. In order to maintain the tension between the classes, however, this is this is kind of a compromise. But this kind of compromise lost its effect on the Joker. So the Joker became like, well, out of the the society becomes like a alienized people or something like that. Well, I'm trying to think through what you're. you're it's a very com- complex comment, uh, but interesting. So I'm trying to think it through in real time. Um, I had an association. My my one association while he was speaking was that somebody was making money selling all the Joker masks. So it was really hard to escape capitalism in that particular way. Yeah, just thinking out loud. I'm not sure this will be helpful. <laughs> so labor, in order to not be alienated, has to be a way of achieving recognition. So the sort of thing that Ms. Rushkova was talking about is feeling of invisibility. Some of our sense of self, and this is goes to Hegel's psychological theory, is built up of the recognition of others, which is a very fraught relationship and involves what he calls a master slave dynamic, the kind of obsessional need to try and control the recognition of the other and then working out of how you're going to resolve all that stuff. For Hegel, what the slave got out of their position is the ability to know themselves through their work, to sort of actually sublimate, to actually have that kind of maturity. And in the position of mastery, that manic defense, you don't get to sublimate, even if you get to dominate other people, even if you do succeed in controlling them. So now I'm trying to connect this to. For Marx, it becomes hard to sublimate. It becomes hard for you. Your day job no longer becomes something satisfying and pleasurable and enriching in your life if it's driven by a um, division of labor where you're doing horrible industrial jobs, right? You know, repeatedly doing something on an assembly line or something like that. So in the case of Arthur Fleck, the Joker character, he, obviously he's looking for that. You know, he has a he has an off-the-beaten-path kind of job and he aspires to it. So he wants to be a stand-up comedian, he's being a clown, he's doing in a way all the right things. He just lacks the he lacks the social capacity to do it. I'm not sure I see a clear connection to capitalism in the film. There's a circumstantial connection in the sense that he's not provided with mental health services. Um, anyway, sorry, I'm trying to think out loud. Maybe that's helpful. But he also represents society. I mean, he is an individual. As an individual, he's mentally ill. And he goes through all of that. But what he, he does represent society. And I think the comment about Marx, I don't know Marx very well at all, but just as, as a member of society and at the end, when he is dancing again on top of the car and all these people are kind of like looking up and he's created all this chaos 
by his actions, fighting against the man, as it were. He would deny this, though, and he does deny it, and I believe him in the film. So no, he totally his ambitions are not political. No, they're not. Uh, it's important that either. they not be political. It's important that other people be providing the political no, integrity. It's, it's important that the populace of Gotham be politically aroused by what he's doing. But for him, the objectives can't be political because that's not the way he thinks of people. He thinks people are, as he said in the talk show, awful, universally awful. And that's a very important conclusion for him psychologically. But go ahead. I think I, people would disagree. So yeah. I mean, he's not political, but the fact, like, he's basically, like, in a clown assembly line that's disconnected from his laughter. Like, a clown makes laughter. He doesn't laugh at what's funny. It's like that that disconnect is kind of like what you were just talking about, like the, aliena- like, the alienation. Like, what he creates is laughter is something that he has no connection with anymore mm-hmm. in, like, this kind of society. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, I think that... Is what I saw. And he also caused the riot on the subway as well. When everybody's wearing the masks and he needed to escape. And somebody, the gun accidentally went off and they started beating on the cops and the cops ended up getting beaten. And he caused that. He didn't know that he caused it or or, I think he was actually pleased that he caused that. But, you know, he's he's apolitical, absolutely. If if at any point in the film the directors had had him purposefully lead a riot, no, they didn't. He had would have been. He didn't. It would have been a dramatic mistake. But sorry, sorry. Okay. not sorry. Yeah, he's right. The film does try to make the connection that, like, and I think it ties into the victim of circumstance kind of thing that keeps getting brought up. But I don't like. While it's like, oh, he didn't have his meds and then this, like, I think that he would still feel equally like powerless, even if he was in a higher social class or powerful. Like, if you look at like a narrow or a regular or something like very very powerful figures who were very very crazy who ended up just being I think killed by people around them so I don't think like social class really plays into it that much I think Joker's supposed to function sort of as a Rorschach test where you're supposed to impose whatever uh, like enemy against Joker that you, you would like to see you know I guess maybe if you're left leaning you see him as a victim of capitalism or if you're you know, right-leaning, you see him as, like, a victim of a, a godless society. So it's really for the uh, audience to make up their mind. <laughs> it's a complicated issue because we're all victims of capitalism, and, but he's also the victim of a very severe developmental trauma. So then it becomes a difficult, a very complicated question of how those play together. But I'm not in the psychoanalytical world or anything like that, but... I very much saw it as a critique of capitalism. The class edge, I thought, was pretty clear. He's poor. He's, as you're saying, alienated in a menial, low-paying job. The alienation was clear. I thought it was very tangible. He's angry at billionaires, the people that run society. They play on this a lot in the movie. They have pictures of these wealthy, successful people talking about how their their belief in a meritocracy, they got there because they deserved it. The other people don't really know how to save themselves and they need these, basically the aristocracy, right? Rule by the best who need to save these pathetic underlings that can't somehow figure it out. I mean, that whole conception of society is placed in question by this film. I mean, and then, yeah, you pointed out I think correctly, the, they drew a direct link between 
the types of things we're seeing under capitalism now and mental disorder, we know there's a correlation. I mean, I don't know all the technical research, but we know there's a correlation between the two. We're seeing it now in reality. That's surely part of the reason why the film is so popular is people see its contemporary relevance because of that. But you pointed out, like, he got his... The, the funding cuts, he couldn't get his meds. Like, they're trying to draw a direct link between the way this social system is working and his problems. They don't portray him as just an isolated, in my opinion, they don't portray him as just an isolated freak with problems. Like, there's a reason his problems and his revenge that he takes on these Wall Street guys inspires a mass movement. Like, his problems aren't his problems. I mean, he has a severe case, he has lots of trauma, but his problems are felt by lots of people. I, I just don't see it. That's very well put. Did you? Uh, I thought no, you were going to say something. I was just going to say because we were talking a little bit about like the, the mental health components of the film, and it, I mean it was it's, it did directly tie in in terms of I mean having a social worker, but even you know eventually it went into kind of his history and the mother as being a schizophrenic and a few other things. But I remember I don't I can't recount exactly what the case was, but like I remember it didn't make sense. It seemed kind of like conflicting in a lot of ways in terms of the psychological background they were giving. And for me, it seemed like the film, if anything, like was a critique of, or it showed our lack of ability to actually understand mental illness, like on a very basic level. Because in a sense, I was like, oh, I like don't know like what this guy is, like what this is about, like what his situation, what he's presenting with. There are all of the like sociological elements in play, but as far as like getting a sense of this character, like, clinically, I was like, oh, like, I can't touch this. It's all, like, really convoluted, and we don't know what's going on. The cases don't make any sense. And I was like, oh, that's actually pretty accurate. We, like, really don't know, like, what this type of thing is. And, like, we make a really good attempt with our particular work to arrive there. But something about it was, like, was seemed beyond what could be conceptualized. And that's why the Rorschach comment really resonated with me. It was like, oh, we're creating the meaning. Like, this is this is just all there. I mean, for me, one of the saddest moments in the film was when he was on the bus and um, he was playing with the kid. He was entertaining the kid with all the different faces. And the mother yelled at him, yeah. saying, like, why are you messing with my kid? Mm-hmm. And then he starts laughing, and he passes that card saying, you know, I have the, I have a condition that I just laugh. Sometimes I have no control over. And I thought that was actually like a real tragedy, which I connected to the end when we were getting a litany of things that he had experienced with, the, with his mother. I mean, and the thing that the, it's always interesting for me, the phrases that stick in my mind now, he was chained to a radiator and probably had brain damage from not only the mother, but from the mother's you know, boyfriends and series of men that, that came to the house. And, I mean, that's, that's, that's tragedy. Do we know what happened to his imaginary girlfriend? Do we think she got hurt? So I can tell you what the director said. What <laughs> the director actually first. Yeah, that's supposed to make it yeah. It looked because the door was unlocked. She didn't lock the door. So he opened the door freely and he sat on the couch. And by that point, he was, that's it, the meds were out of the system. And there were all those moments where you could see he was actually by himself, but he imagined her. This whole relationship was beautiful. And she comes out and says, I know you. You're the neighbor from upstairs. Because that, that scene with the elevator. 
And this is the moment where we know that was not real. That's a very clear illustration to the audience that he imagined the whole thing. And she says, and he, he looks at her and says, I had a very bad day. I was so afraid that, to me, it looked like she had gotten, she, she didn't come out alive. Because there was no follow-up to tell me that maybe she was okay. Did he leave? I don't see him leaving at that point. Did he have a gun with him? I don't remember. If he did, he probably definitely... When and did that happen? What was the sequence of where did that bomb see? He had just figured out that he had been adopted and then he left the place and it was like rain and then I think he just killed did he just kill kill his mom with a pillow? Yeah. It was right after. So he came to the closest next person to him, which was his imaginary girlfriend. So he just murdered the closest person, his mother, so they didn't show that because had they done that, that would have been I feel like it would have curtailed the movie into a whole another thing, but what did this do? You guys really want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone have the opposite feeling about well, yeah. whether or not he killed? I, I think she would have stayed alive. Yeah, I yeah. because yeah. she's yeah. the the cool object. The, the yeah, of yes. People. So the reaction of I just had a bad day is so to protect her. Like don't get close. Yeah. I wouldn't believe she was. I wouldn't believe she's alive. She's yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I think it doesn't matter because uh, he is now like she never wronged him, and everyone just like the um, just like the, the, the little man. Yeah. 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 Speaking of which, that's an interesting thing in another way, though, the little man, because he does express pretty high empathy toward the little man, and it's, it's one way when you were talking earlier about. If it goes too far, it won't work. Well, he's just gone very far with the, you know, uh, former coworker. They sort of bring it in both for humor and also, I mean, it's a sort of a very empathic response at that point. At least it, it keeps you identified with him, too, at that point. Yeah, I think that's another subtle and clever scene because yeah. he's sparing the little guy. But also, he has a very cavalier attitude. He doesn't fully grasp how afraid the little guy is. Yeah. So, I don't know if you remember the, just sort of the tone of his response. It's like he doesn't, when the little guy can't reach the doorknob and comes back to ask to be helped out, he's afraid of being killed. And Arthur Fleck treats it in a very cavalier, like, you know, laughing sort of way. But on the other hand, I think your point is right. He's highly empathetic in his, in his own way. Because you saw him being put down by yeah. society as well, by right. making fun of him. I would understand this way because I remember that I saw in some kind of like a TV series or <coughs> something who said that it's powerful to kill somebody, but it is even more powerful to spare somebody. Hmm. So he is now the one who has power. So it is his right, his power to spare his his or her life the, his, the little guy he can kill the big guy and uh, spare the little guy but he can also like kill his his mother and spare his like mother and girlfriend it's up to him and he is now he becomes someone who has power so he is actually I think it's some of his game I still think some humanness comes through there yeah, that it's not just uh, the power trip but because he is identified with the small guy who's been prejudiced against and so forth, and there is an empathy and a connection. I honestly, I did see it as a mix of those two things. I felt something sadistic about how cavalierly he reacted when the guy came back to ask to be let out, and it was really 
disgusting and horrifying in a way. Just the flex lack of comprehension. In a way, it's like he failed to comprehend how awful and traumatic what he's just done is to another person. But on the other hand, I think you're right. He's observing a kind of code there about who deserves to be spared or who who doesn't. So I, again, I think it was walking that kind of line that I described before. But it, it's trying to go over it enough that you feel, I mean, at least I felt really disgusted and horrified by all that. You know, the violence is moralized, the guy betrayed him, gave him the gun, got him fired, all that stuff. But still, it's repellent and it's not the type of things you would see in, in many of these types of movies. It's a graphic, violent scene that's um, gets some real, some real complexity in there with all that stuff. I think there are a lot of things about this movie that you don't know what's real and what's not. And I love that about this movie because it really stays true to the Joker where his past is unknown and it's a multiple choice. And Arthur is not a reliable narrator, so like the entire girlfriend scenes were not real. What else wasn't real? I looked at like some YouTube videos and if you go back and watch the movie, all the clocks at the same time. There's that scene where he's talking to the social worker and it does a quick clip to him just banging his head against the wall in the white room. So how do we know that that social worker's real? Is she the same, his idea of the same woman at the end? Like there's just a lot of things going on where like you just don't even know. You can't trust the actual story, which is one of my favorite parts about the movie. Did you see the twist coming with the girlfriend being imaginary? I didn't. I didn't see it at all. But when it happened, it just especially after the fact when I kind of watched all the YouTube videos about serious you know, like Joker. It's just like it was not only that, but so many other little things that just could have just not happened. A little closer to the answer of why is this movie so disturbing. Well, I wanted to respond to your comment. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I actually kind of thought that the girlfriend was imaginary because wherever you have the image of the mother who's kind of horrible, you're going to get the imaginary image of someone who's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in that sense, I kind of thought, you know, I guess mm-hmm. he kills his father and his mother, which is, I kind of looked at the movie as this big giant wish wishful thinking in terms of like the Joker is you know maybe a little bit of each one of us there's like a Joker and we want to kill our mothers and fathers in a certain sense but then he actually goes off and does it because he's out of control mm-hmm. and then he also gets his imaginary you know kind of friends to support him in the whole ordeal and then the more he imagines the, like the more imaginary they get the the more his actions become more and more horrible, like eventually he kills people. So there's like the split girls and girls and girls through the movie. I mean, but in terms of like the finesse and the reality, which is definitely like up for question, like the film, I mean, it's a dream. It's, I mean, a film is not a dream. I think, again, that's what's kind of maybe like how it can resonate with so many people on so many levels, again, in this sort of very idiosyncratic way, is because like a dream, it kind of. Um, certain parts stay with us while others leave. I was just wondering um, what was the motive behind going into the talk show? Because like he goes in so emotionally charged and he he thinks that's when he's going to kill himself with the joke, but then like he kills the host. I was just wondering like what did he expect? Did he really think that he will be well received? The show, like, did he not think of the possibility that he'll be made fun of? And 
on the surface level, it's set up as he is going there to avenge himself because the talk show host took a video clip of him doing stand-up and ridiculed him for that. And he invited so, Yeah, and then invited him to ridicule him some more. So he is going to get revenge for that. And doesn't, in, to my, in my view, doesn't seem to be thinking a lot about what's going to happen next. He's just, like but yeah. Revenge by killing himself? I, I thought he'd gone to plan. I thought he just planned to kill the talk show host. Am I wrong about that? But I never believed that he would actually do that. I thought. And I, mean, I never believed he would actually, like, shoot. I thought it would be, like, a blank whatever you call it, I don't know the term. A blank bullet, I don't know what you call it. It's called a blank. Yeah, a blank, there you go. I thought it would just be like, yeah. When people say he killed the father, is that what they mean? Is the talk show host? Yeah. The talk show host is the imaginary father. Well, the wished for father. Yeah, the wished for father. He has that earlier fantasy. Yeah, You guys remember the earlier? I wish I had a son like you. Yes, I wish I had a son. Dr. Wagner. I think it illustrates well that a revenge motive in suicide is essentially equivalent to the revenge motive in homicide. He could punish this failed father by shooting himself on his television show or by shooting him. Either of those would be a triumph in the mind of this character. So like what turned that around for him? That I don't know. I don't think there was any indication of a turning point there, but I think that the director did set us up to think he was going to shoot himself. I would say like it's almost like which is like the healthier choice. Like he in the end he chose to not kill, you know, like, it's like, I feel like he had to make a choice, and I feel like he did the right one. Like, I don't know, like, he did the right thing. I think, like, sitting there, he was able to actually see him as a separate person, and not his father. I think he had, like, a moment of clarity sitting there, and when he was making fun of him, he was able to see, like, he's not my father, and he's not me, so I will kill him and not kill myself. Yeah. That's kind of how I... Yeah, yeah no, I... I agree with that. It's always healthier to kill other people. The most honest illustration of, compared to everywhere else where we see a little bit of empathy and a little bit of humanistic, this is one scene that is most honest of a psychopath who has no empathy. They would not kill themselves. They would kill others. They, the narcissism doesn't allow you to go and shoot and direct this to itself. The only way you can avoid doing that is by murdering others. And he did it publicly on TV, which actually kind of translated <coughs> like a wave to people. How many people watch television? It inspired and brought the making of creation of a Joker. I feel like the timing, somebody mentioned the time, the timing of this film and the timing of his circumstances in life how depressed society was, and they needed a crazy leader. They needed a motivation and inspiration. And his appearance on TV inspired a war against the man, right? Against the government, the, the wealthy, the capitalist. And it's it's so significant because all he had to he did it on television. That was the creation, you know, of a wave of a political infrastructure. Like a you know, question. 
I guess I wanted to say I don't see him as a psychopath. I think actually I was really taken by the film as an illustration of what we study here all the time about the breakdown of schizophrenic defense because his defense was working well for him in the beginning and uh, he was living in a very delusional, illusory delusional world which was intruded upon, he got off the medication, but also he was just intruded upon by reality in various ways. The schizophrenic defense broke down and he became in touch with his rage and very, very violent. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought it was a brilliant portrayal of mental illness and psychotic breakdown. The other thing that really disturbed me was how I mean, the social context was important, but showing how, given enough rage and disempowerment and oppression, how any leader will do, including a really mentally ill one. And I think the parallels to where we are today escaped. So I found that really disturbing. Yeah, the appeal of the is. I was thinking of that in this movie too. The appeal. If you have grievance, to have the appeal of the leader who is operating destruction, and, and this he's a leader that did that. I was thinking of our training here too, in the sense of the first half of the movie. We're trained here to sit with all sorts of feelings and to sit with and be with the patient. It's a very challenging thing because it challenges every part of our minds. And so to sit with all sorts of uh, the, the whole range of uh, feelings. And the first hour for me was intolerable. I kept looking at my watch. I love movies, but <laughs> I was like, this is got another, this is two hours? <laughs> I couldn't stand it. And I think I was thinking of how that's how the page, he was a wonderful actor because he was, you were with him in that depression and uh, hopelessness. And I kept thinking, well, this guy does live though because he's in a lot of other movies. I kept trying to go. <laughs> but no good can come of it. So I kept feeling like it was just this buildup and buildup of the depression. So the resistance of the tension that was building up in me and in him simultaneous so the relief when he started killing people was just fabulous for me and I think it was another way to be with him it was a, it was a break it was a psychotic break but the pleasure of not having that depression was really I mean, made me understand why people go there and he just did it in such a wonderful way so uh, I left the movie also feeling great. And I was thinking, this is interesting. I was all wired up. Um, and it was tragic, but I was like, okay, this is okay. I'm gonna be a group leader, and there's Bruce, there's Bruce Wayne, he's gonna run into him again. That's interesting how that was. And then I was I wonder if he really is that guy's son, because I believe that this, he could have impregnated his mother very easily and set up the whole adoption. That all doubt was there too, and what are going on. But those tolerating all of those feelings is what you work with when you're a clinician. To help understand how other people get there, and also having the awareness 
that we can get there. Yes, that's, that's the mirror part. The, huh. the, the film for me is how, if you really honestly sit there, you, know, you have to put yourself in the, in the role of, of the Joker, in the role of the protagonist, and how quickly you can, we, any of us, can slide in there. And that's, I think, what's really disturbing for a lot of people. I, I said I saw it once, I immediately told you, I think if you should, we have to do a movie thing on this. And then I was like, okay, once we agree to do it, I'm like, I need to see it a second time. And I, I spent about four weeks of avoiding it. So I have not seen it a second time, but only seen it once. But some of the imagery just stays with me so much. Yeah. My experience in watching this, watching this movie is like uh, good all along, because I think, uh, well, I have read a lot of Marx, so I think I was traumatized before. I was traumatized like, traumatized by Marx? Yeah, you're right. Uh, in Marx criticism, criticism, actually, uh, I've seen like a lot of like facts that that's really disturbing. For example, like uh, how much does the work workers work actually goes into himself? That is like a very little percentage. They're like Marxist economists analyzing and calculating all of that. So I was like traumatizing like pre previously, but like I built up some defense on it. So <laughs> I actually felt like really one hundred percent good in watching this watching this movie. So revolutionary action. Uh, I recommend you all read some Marx. <laughs> I think it is good for like a second. I can have a Marx in the Joker class. <laughs> I have a question following Dr. Schneider's comment. Was, when you said the breaking down of the schizophrenic defense, it, you said it was the break, the illusion. The illusions no longer were the illusions and delusions. Enough. Yeah, yeah. It's okay in but, the beginning in this very illusory yeah. world. Right. right? Yeah. But then I, it made me think, so the, with the father he wished for, the talk show host, the, uh, that idealized father, so is that part of the connection is once he saw that this man that he idealized was making direct fun of him was that part of his the unraveling the when once he realized like wake up call well, yeah the, the, this he learned this person I idealized his him. mother he had this he really idealized his mother also and right, he was taking right. care of her and turned out she was a horrible mother when she found out right and then right. He killed her <laughs> right yeah yeah I'm just because I'm wondering what happened right yeah. after that. <laughs> don't bathe her because yeah. you might have to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just wondering, I'm not going to watch it again because I just want to know what happened. Once he saw that in the hospital room, that scene of the talk show host, he was so happy, and then you just see him crumble as he watches it. What happened after that? What's, is that, does anyone remember? I'm going to watch it again. I don't remember. Well, I, I was wondering about the refrigerator. The oh, way yeah, the yeah. When did that happen? What Was that related? That was like banging a head against the wall. Like they were, that was a clip that like I think... We went inside the fridge. Yeah, he, was was preparing, he was preparing for the, the to go to the talk show. Yeah. 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 It was, that, yeah. yeah, it just seemed like he was still in the kitchen, but then like 
that happened and they there was no like follow-up of like what they yes. just like, do a new yeah. scene that was a completely improvised scene by the way yeah. that was not in the script yeah. that was just Joaquin Phoenix did okay, now, can as, I as was the dancing scene in the bathroom yeah. can I say something um, about the I don't know how, how many of you are familiar with uh, Roland Barthes the uh, French I thought it was going to be Mars for that is not not Marx, but uh, well, he is the one. Uh, he is a French philosopher, and uh, he suggested a theory of like the author is dead. His the death meaning, of the author is the death of the author. You don't actually have to like interpret all the details of this work because even the director himself doesn't have the full right to explain it all because it is not uh, made by him. His own, but also made made by you know all the ideology, all the society, all the like uh, the basic things. So he is not the only author of this. So he does not have the full full right to interpret it. Also, it is actually every everybody's right to to interpret it. Or even you can put in some plot into it. I mean, you can put in some, your own plot into it and, and, and uh, to make your own uh, version of stories. And uh, many people's stories can make like a vi- uh, variation, something like that. I think uh, you can understand it this way instead of like discussing about what really happened here. There, I think that is not that meaningful, maybe. Well, it's a very complicated topic, and I'm going to plug my podcast, Partially Tony Wright. We did a big episode on authorial, authorial intent, and we read that essay and many others. I'm not sure. I think that might be a false dilemma. I think you can look at it in both ways. You can be very, very anti-authorial intent, which I, I share that with you, but you can also be interested in what really happened in some other sense. But yeah. I thought some other people were mean? getting ready to respond to that, yeah. Speaking of the author and speaking of the dream, I'm thinking that, and I think you said this in an earlier context, that the Joker character in the Batman films is in the mind of the audience. It's not in the mind of Fleck. So if you think of whose mind the story is taking place in, part of the, we are, you know, by the hand of the director, writing that part of the story into the psychotic decompensation of this individual person in the social context that we see in that. And I think that's really interesting in and of itself and also as a way to understand how empathy works and what we are bringing, what we're adding, that we know. And the other thing is you could read it um, you had mentioned the dream movie. You could read it as his retelling of his life, his imaginary telling of his life, while he's in the hospital. What if he's in the hospital the whole time? Yeah, and he's soothing himself by yes. telling this yeah. story about how he became a cultural icon and so on. Telling and retelling. So again, that could go to what you're saying about the suicide and the homicide. He's playing, I think, with ways to tell his story if you're looking at it as a retrospective mm-hmm. telling. And in that way, it's very much like, you know, someone coming to analysis and telling you the emotional story of their life. It's not always the same story. There are new things that occur. There's a context that you have as the analyst that 
you're bringing that the person speaking to you doesn't necessarily know. And it's very much like um, the experience of watching the film, the layers of empathy, therefore. Well, and that possibility is raised at the end, with the ending. That yeah. it might all be a, a story or a fantasy. Mm-hmm. So that did happen, there was, because I couldn't remember if that yeah, scene was they, there, and I was like, I think the whole everything thing. Into right. a whole different dimension. Yeah, so I think that in itself, like, I mean, one, it's almost reflective of the conversation, and I kind of dreamlike, and why I went this band, these crop up. Because I, I couldn't remember exactly how it occurred. So yeah, it's all, it's Which, kind of like Alice in Wonderland. At the end, you talk, what are you talking about? That like, like there's some scene at least that where we have a sense he's back in the hospital, and yeah. he's there, and it is, it becomes a bit perplexing if any of this occurred, if any of it was real, or if it was fantasy. And I think that pivot point is like, also shows a lot in our responses to that, and like, what really happened to this film, and is that meaningful, and all those sorts of things. Dr. Wagner, can you say a little bit more about how you're using empathy? I don't understand quite what you're saying with empathy. Well, I think I'm using it in different ways. But one answer to Dr. Sharp's question about why the film is so disturbing is that we are feeling sympathetic with a character who is a a murderer and an out-of-control maniac. It's necessary to be able to connect empathically with anyone and everyone, right? If we're going to survive our current condition, or if we're going to talk to another person, if we're going to be an analyst, if we're going to be an analyst, these things are, we have to feel everything. And we have to feel ourselves into the subjectivity of the other person, be affected by them, be occupied by them. And the movie really occupies mm-hmm. the audience. You have about 10 more minutes, so if you haven't said something, there's your 10-minute warning. I think there was some, so many uncanny moments in the movie, movies that I found myself feeling like I know stuff about this, I know the reality of it, but then I found myself lost again. And I think they did a great job in terms of positioning the audience in a place where some of the very primal fantasy would come up that we all know of, but at the same time we don't want to know about. So I think that's part of the reason the film was particularly very disturbing and we don't want to go and face that again. It was it really talked to the unconscious, I think, in some way. I want to piggyback on that comment that also the character was really well made because so there were so much overlap of different characters. You could see Quasimodo, you could see, like, there were like are so many different overlaps of the ugly parts of us that we don't want to see. And I think that's part of it. This was really a movie about the, the shadow and shadow uh, repression, where the Joker has just been repressing all of these violent tendencies with the exact opposite about making people laugh, making people smile. When in reality, he fails to you know properly integrate his like aggression and really you know stand up for himself in a healthy way you know like whereas a scene in like the Wall Street scene where he you know viciously guns them down and where he could have just uh, ended it uh, you know in a less brutal fashion and he becomes sort of uh, you know possessed by the shadow and he continues to kill. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. There's lots of aggression and healthy self-assertion that and that's one of his big problems is socially right it's doing that he doesn't know where to draw the line and 
the only place he can be is in a completely overcompensated place of aggression. Um, sorry. Yeah. Earlier on, one of the things I was thinking about was I was going to ask a question like, why did this make me think of the way I like look at homeless people so much? But I think like with the reflection stuff, it really helps because like you see them, especially if it's like an assertive homeless person, they're like talking to you and stuff, and you have to like, really interact and. And just, like it's the same way where it's like something that you could be that you don't really want to. Yeah, well, what is the what is the feeling? Sorry that you got. Like I don't know the same feeling when I left the theater, like the dread, like I never want to watch this movie again. That was like really good. <laughs> With a homeless person, I mean. Well, um, like not like someone who's down, like someone who like like you can tell they're they're kind of whack and. Like, I remember I was outside a liquor store once, and this dude, like, walked up to me, and, like, big dude, and then he started, like, talking about some random thing about aliens and stuff, and I was like, all right, well, you know, like, what's he going to do? And, like, if I'm a little neurotic or if I'm a little anxious, could I end up being that way or falling that far? It's almost like when they, like, in high school, when they would bring a guy who's, like, I had my whole college career ahead of me, and then I got to be a heroin, and I come from a great family, and all this stuff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there but for the grace of God, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or whoever. <laughs> I think we invoke the idea of the shadow in an archetypal way too. That the stuff we try to get rid of. I'm not going to remember the young quote exactly, but it's something about how we fear them. And if we do, if we just let them kind of fester in the corner, they'll form a mass and come out. It'll be the return of all that stuff that we're trying to not see in ourselves that we only see in other people. And that could become a real problem. And I think that's kind of also gets to what your comment, Dr. Snyder, about the, how people impinge in a way that they just kept upping the tension level. Until we get to what, what um, Dr. Huckenberger was saying, like there's just so much pleasure in finally killing, at least it relieves the tension, drops it down. These two lines of the movie are coming to my mind, where it's like the line he says where his mom tells him his mom says that you were raised to bring joy into the world or something like that. And then there's another line where it's like, you're going to take this like a good little boy or something. But doesn't he say that to the talk show host? Like, I'm just supposed to like take this like a good little boy or there's something to I don't know why that's coming to my mind right now, but yeah, he never learned to integrate his aggression. It was just He says, you know, when he's disclaiming any political motivation in the talk show scene, he's saying, It's not because of that, it's just because you're awful. And everyone is awful. Which there's an element of truth in that, right? There's an element there are elements of truth in everything that he's learning to do. He's he's Developing perverse variations of, you know, developmental necessities, being able to stand up for himself, understanding that people are awful, but, you know, he should also understand that they're not completely awful. And that. So, was the, do you think, you know, when they pull him out of the car at the end after the crash, was that like Jesus symbolism or? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he rose from the dead. Yeah. yeah. Good. I'm realizing and thinking about it that, I mean, there was a lot of violence and some of it was disturbing, but the worst thing for me was hearing his history as a child. Yeah. yeah. It was, that was perfect. Yeah, was, it, was there any point where people teared up or mm-hmm. what was that? Was that the childhood part? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah but the, the, the point that the, 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 in the bus where he was actually trying to interact with the child yeah. and the mother just... 
which I kind of wonder what the model is. Does that imply that anyone with a childhood like that is going to be a mess killer? No. Uh, no, no, I don't think so. Situation. Yeah. But what was it about him that drove him to do that versus somebody else who has a similar childhood that doesn't do that? case, uh, Kendra was worked with for about two years or so, who was adopted and who makes very little contact. Sit and or lay down and just doesn't ask much from me. Things had escalated and then finally got his parents kind of session and uh, began to understand. This kid talked about how his parents never got it right. Everything that was wrong. And that there's no hope in the future. It's never going to get any better. So the past was horrible. The future's going to be horrible. And the one thing that he said, and this is a weird kind of association, where he just said, you know, if you break a phone, like if you break a phone, you can break a phone like a hundred times or five hundred times, and then that's it. After it's been broken five hundred times, you just can't do anything more. And in that particular moment, I really understood that this kid feels like he's broken beyond repair. Being able to get him to accept what he actually has in this in this adopted home is part of the work. But he's in an environment if we can help him stabilize it, because his, his I think his tendency is to want to get out. Right, to destroy this home and to prove that he's just no good. You know, we have that tendency to want to repeat this destructive rejection because it's actually much scarier to think about being in a place where he actually is loved and these people invited him into their home through adoption. You know, Floyd, when you talked about Rorschach, Floyd said the purpose of drama was for the idiosyncratic experience of each of us to use the trauma, have a little distance because it's not real, but enough connection with the feeling that we can work through a lot. We can identify with all sorts of people and also experience a lot of feeling that we might not in an intellectual way. And I think this evening, it's an idiosyncratic tapestry. I always love our discussion of movies because everything people say has value and it weaves into something, and we could spend a lot of time talking about this movie. I want to remember all those songs that were in it. That's Life at the End. It was like, perfect. I wanted to go download it. And you two really made this happen. What you brought to this discussion was really, really wonderful. Thank you very, very much.